All right, let's pray. Please pray with me. Father, we come again to meditate on your word together. And we want to be spoken to by you, Holy Spirit. We want to be changed and conformed into the image of you, Christ. We want to be obedient to you, Lord. We want to be doers of your word and not hearers only. So God, help us to lean in now. Incline our ears to hear. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Lord, make us like those Bereans we looked at last week, Lord, that received your word with all readiness and eagerness and search the scriptures daily to see if they were true. Father, please help us in these moments. We commit this time to you. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. Father, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we see in this passage, we're going to be in Acts 17, verse 16, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. What we see in this passage is Paul... Is all alone in Athens. Now, if you remember, the reason that he is all alone in Athens is because he uh, was persecuted at Berea. He was pretty much driven out of the city of Berea. And uh, Luke and Timothy stayed behind in Berea. And the people that transported Paul to this city, Athens, uh, they left. They left to go back to Berea with word to tell Luke and Timothy to come meet him. So here he is, all alone in Athens. It doesn't seem like. This was necessarily on the agenda. It doesn't seem like this was a strategic uh, move by the apostles. This is the next spot that they planned on going in their missionary journeys. In fact, it says in verse 16, 16, 17, that he's just there waiting on his friends. He's just there waiting. Paul's just there in Athens all alone waiting on his friends. Let me tell you a little bit about this city. I want to try to see if I can just draw a little bit of a picture of uh, what's going on in this city, Athens, before we actually read what happens to Paul while he's there. Athens was a very influential, very important city. Uh, it's a modern day capital of Greece. Uh, one writer said this was the intellectual capital of the world. The intellectual capital of the world. And we can see that as we read through Acts 17 in just a moment. That these are very uh, uh, intellectual philosophers. And these people that speak at the... Areopagus, and they they always uh, talking and thinking about some new thing, as it's going to say as we read it here in just a moment. This is the home base for famous philosophers that you probably heard of, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, one one writer said this. One commentator said this. Ancient Athens was the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy. Music, ethics, theater, and medicine from a Western civilization standpoint. It's a pretty big claim. So this city was a very famous city. It was a big deal. It was a tourist attraction. It's still a tourist attraction today, and it was certainly a tourist attraction then. People would show up, and travelers would be mesmerized by the architecture that they would see. They'd be mesmerized by the sophistication of these people and of this city it's a pretty, pretty interesting place. Now, we know from history and our passage that this is a city full of idols, filled with idolatry. We see that in the first two verses that we're going to read today, that Paul sees this city and it is full of idols. One ancient writer said it's easier to find a God in Athens than it is to find a man. It's full of idols, this city called Athens. Now, I want us to be careful not to hear that, that this place was full of idolatry, and do not distance your culture too far away from that. You know, you say, well, we don't, you know, they had idolatry back then, but we don't do that idolatry thing anymore, right? But you know, if you think about this Bible verse, Colossians 3, 5, it says, covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Think about covetousness. Covetousness, which is idolatry. This lust after other things, desire for other things. Here's what that obviously means. Is that anything that you desire, that you long for, that you want in the place of God. If God even takes second place, if anything is even in the running alongside God, that is your idol. You're walking in idolatry. Therefore, any culture that does not have God as its one true desire, the longing of the heart of the culture, then that culture is full of idols. Because they desire something. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So do not distance yourself too far away from Athens here. Now we know also that this idolatry was fueled by the philosophies of men. We're going to read here about these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And you got these philosophers and they want to hear and they, they meet in the Areopagus and speak about these new things and all these uh, using beautiful languages and new ideas and all this stuff. So there were philosophies of men that were kind of like undercurrents in their lives. Some things they believed and thought and didn't even realize they believed and thought those things. Because that was their, that was their philosophy that undergirded everything they believed, everything they did. Now again, do not distance your culture too far away from this. In fact, if you do a little digging... And you find out, what, what are these Epicureans and what are these, what are these Stoics? You're going to find out that these are just names that were there. And we've kind of repackaged and renamed these things. But there's a lot of similarities even today. For example, both of these, and, and, and those were the main philosophies in Athens. And both of them did not believe in an absolute truth, an ultimate truth. You see little shades of relativism, which is obviously all over our culture. So, so here's what I'm getting at. If you, if you look at what these people believe, the Epicureans and the Stoics and the other philosophers that are there, it's no different than it is today that we also have secular humanism and materialism and, and relativism and uh, I think Albert Muller called it moral therapeutic deism. We have all these things that they're like undercurrents in our lives that honestly affect us more than we would like to admit. They affect us more than we would like to admit. And so do not distance yourself too far away. That we too, in our culture, have man-made philosophies that, that are like undercurrents that lead us to idolatry, to worship our false gods, to, to, to desire things before or alongside Him. So here's Paul. That's Athens for you. Now here's Paul. And he's, he's in Athens. He's, he's, he's waiting on his friends. Now if you were him... What would you do in this city? Little Paul, just little Paul in this massive city, this famous city, uh, this beautiful city. What would you do if you were there? So what does Paul do? That's the question. What does Paul do? I want to read some of our passage here. I want you to see what Paul did in this city called Athens. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the, and, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said... He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange, thing, strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Now, we're going to see what Paul says right here, what he preaches. We're going to come back to that. I want you to skip forward to verse 32. He's just preached to these people in the Areopagus, and, and I want you to see how it unfolds in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said... We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, 
the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others, others with them. Now we're going to try to take this passage under three headings for clarity's sake. And let me just tell you what those three headings are very quickly. One is the evangelizer. I could have used the word evangelist and it would have uh, been more familiar to you. But I, I, I tend to think when you guys or any of us here in this culture, evangelists, we think about some job that some guy has as a special working. But I want, you, I want you to think like evangelist, evangelizer, that thing that we're all called to of heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ as evangelizers. Second heading will be the evangel. Now I'm still in that language from J.I. Packer and the book that he wrote called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Good book. And uh, he said in that book that the evangelizer makes known the evangel. The evangel is the gospel. It's the message that the evangelist preaches. It's the message that we preach. It's the gospel. It's the evangel. And third, evangelistic outcomes. What was the outcome of Paul's preaching? And what kind of outcomes are we to expect as we live evangelistic lives? Now, I really want to encourage you to engage the scriptures right now. Engage the scriptures. As we think through this, meditate on this together. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, God gave some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Hear the word of God in such a way that you want to be equipped to go do ministry for the glory of Jesus Christ. And especially in this area of evangelism. Now here's what we're not doing. I'm not trying to wrangle in a bunch of people that do not want to speak about Jesus and just force you to go do that. That's not what I'm trying to do. It is, can I get an amen on this? It is a privilege that we get to serve Jesus. It is a privilege we get to serve Him. We, we get to preach about Him, tell people about Him, let them know about this glorious gospel that saves souls. I want to equip saints that want to do that. Okay, so hear these things as, as an equipping session. We're digging into a passage that tells us what Paul did when he was all alone in a religious yet evil city. A lot like ours. A city that's filled with idolatry. A lot like ours. A, a, a city that's, that's filled with these underlying philosophies of men. A lot like ours. We're about to dig into a passage of scripture like that. So incline your ear to hear God's word. Let's take that first heading. The evangelizer. Now, now Paul the evangelizer. Now, I want to give you three observations about Paul. From this passage of scripture. First observation about him. Is this. He was a man with a jealousy for God's glory. He possessed a fiery jealousy. For the glory of Jesus. For the glory of God. And you see that in verse 16. Look at it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. What does that mean? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this word provoked is a word as he was stirred up in his soul when he saw that this place was full of idols. And it's a stirring that has a tinge of anger to it. He's stirred to anger when he sees the idols getting all this praise all over this city. He is stirred to anger. He's upset. He's distressed about what he sees. That's what this word provoked means. He's provoked, stirred to anger in his spirit when he sees the idols that are all around him. Now, this is the same Greek word in this word provoked. The same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. That was used to say about God. That, that God was provoked to anger at the people of Israel's idolatry. So he's like God here. Provoked to anger over idolatry. Now this is not the kind of provoked to anger or, or stirred to anger. That causes you to distance yourself from people. To be disgusted at the idolaters. It's not that kind of anger. You've probably seen that before. You may have felt that before. This is the kind of stir to anger that, that is that is stirred to anger because these idols are getting praise that they do not deserve. That praise only belongs to my Lord, to my Savior, to Jesus Christ. And he's stirred to anger over, over that. He's stirred to anger 
in such a way that it moves him to do the most loving thing he can ever do for the idolaters. To take the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to them. The most loving thing he could ever do. It's that kind of provoked to anger. Exodus 34 verse 14 will be a good cross reference. It speaks about God and it says that God, he tells the people, do not worship other gods because the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. What do you mean he's a jealous God? He's a jealous God. He's jealous for your worship. Do you get that? That he created you to worship him. He created you for his glory. And he is jealous for your worship. Don't spend your worship on undeserving things. And Paul is like his God. This evangelist is like his God. Psalm 119.36 would be another good cross reference. Psalm 119.36. Listen to this. Have you ever experienced this? Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Imagine going to God in tears. God, rivers of water are running down my face because you're not exalted here because men don't keep your law. He was provoked in his spirit when he saw that the city was full of idols. That's one observation about Paul the evangelizer. Second observation is this. He was a man of truth. He was a man of truth. And everybody who lives an evangelistic lifestyle must be a man or woman of truth. Well, he was a man of truth there. Look at verse 17. It says, so he reasoned. So he reasoned. Now this word, this Greek word reason here, is used nine times in the book of Acts to describe Paul's evangelism. And the first time we see this in Acts 17 too, we saw last week. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And nine more times we see him reasoning with them. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's a man of truth. This is not the reasoning of relativism. I was like, hey, let me hear your perspective. Hear my, what's your truth is your truth. What's my truth is my truth. It's not that kind of reasoning. It's the reasoning that's rooted in an ultimate standard. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. God's Word. Acts 17, 2. It's not the reasoning of, of compromise. Of, Let's hear what you have to say. You, you hear what I have to say. And we meet in the middle somewhere. No. He has a standard of truth. And He's aiming to persuade them to the truth. Acts 18 verse 4 says it like this. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's reasoning from the Scriptures and His aim is to do what? To persuade them. To move them. He was a man of truth. Paul was a man of truth using the word of truth to preach Jesus the truth. He was a man of truth. Now you imagine the Epicureans and the Stoics who do not believe in ultimate truth, absolute truth. They don't believe in that, okay? They have this, this uh, version of relativism. They don't, they don't believe that. You imagine them hearing something like this. We're going to read it in a moment in verse 30. You imagine them hearing something like this. These times of ignorance, God's overlooked. Your idolatry, God, God has overlooked this, but these times of ignorance, listen. Now God commands all men everywhere to repent. That wouldn't have sat well with him, would it? We'll find out. He was a man of truth. Third observation here. So not only did he possess a fiery jealousy for God's glory, not only was he a man of truth, but third observation is he did not wait idly for an open door. Did you hear me right on that? He did not wait around idly. Sit around and wait for an open door. Now what do I mean by that? I need to explain that. I'm not anti-open door. I believe the Bible uses that language that God opens doors for His gospel. He even gives us an example that we should pray that. God, open doors for the advancement of your gospel. We should pray those sort of things. But you know the mindset I'm talking about, right? Waiting around, sitting around idly for an open door. Imagine this. He sees Athens... People giving glory to idols, headed on a path to hell. Christ is not being exalted. And he's burning on the inside about this. And what does he do? He just sit around. He just say, I guess I just got to wait for an open door. What does he do about it? And I would argue that he does not sit down 
idly and wait for an open door. In fact, verse 17, look at it. So, in response to his inner, uh, inner burning of spirit for these people, verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogues. I, lo I love this response here. I love it. He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and he, keep going, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So here he is. He's provoked in his spirit about this city. And so what does he do? He, he begins to go to the synagogues where he's familiar with opening the, the scriptures already. And he reasons with them there. He preaches the gospel there. He goes into the marketplace every day. And whoever happens to be there, he shares the gospel with them. He moves in obedience to evangelism. Now, in the midst of him doing that, guess what happens? As you keep reading, it says some Epicureans and Stoics, they come to him. What does this babbler want to say? They say, hey, excuse me. We want to know more about what you're trying to say. We want to understand it. You come speak to us in the Areopagus. We're going to give you the floor to speak. So in the midst of obedience to evangelism, God opens a door. So he's not sitting around idly waiting for the door to be opened. It's in the midst of evangelistic obedience. God begins to open a door. And I love this verse. I've often used verse 17. And somebody, people have said things to me in the past. Like, look, all this, you know, going and sharing the gospel and being evangelistic. We don't need all that. We just need to be friends with people. Just really be friends with people. And when God opens the door, then you share with them. Now, again, I'm not anti-open door. And I'm certainly not anti-be friends with lost people and love them and care for them and share the gospel. I'm not opposed to any of that. I'm just saying this verse, he is just going to the marketplace every day. And whoever happens to be there gets to hear about Christ. It's a beautiful verse of seeing him being intentional to obey, to obey the Great Commission, to obey uh, his evangelistic charge. And in the midst of that, God opens the door for him to speak to almost the whole city. So this is the evangelizer, a man possessed with a fiery Jealousy for his glory, a man of truth, and a man not sitting down idly waiting for an open door. Now, second heading, the evangel. What, what does this man preach? What's his message? If, if you and I want to be evangelistic people, what needs to be pouring out of our mouths? What's his message? What's the evangel here? Now, you get a summary statement of it in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, look at the second half. It says, Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There's your summary statement. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, if you're living an evangelistic life and you wonder, am I... Am I preaching the right message? Is the right message coming out in my preaching and in my conversations? Well, well, could somebody else summarize your message as he or she preaches Jesus and the resurrection? That's what they, that's what poured out of his mouth. Now, now, let's think about that summary statement for just a minute. He preaches Jesus. That's the message. Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Jesus is the son of God incarnate. The Son of God who became, who took on flesh. Our eternal God has, was in eternity past, was not human. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, a glorious, mind-blowing reality. And the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh. And He's fully God, fully man. And I love this man. And you love this man. This is the one that speaks with sternness and soldiers fall back and yet he laughs with little children. Glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. This is who he is and we see it through the Gospels. Look at Jesus and what did he do? Jesus went to the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. Where he died for sinners. Where he laid down his life. Where He took the death you were supposed to take. Where He absorbed the wrath of God for us. Where His love was poured out at the cross. Jesus' glorious Son of God in the flesh who died for us. But He wasn't just preaching Jesus, but He says also the resurrection. In other words, He didn't stay in the tomb. He didn't stay dead. 
He doesn't just preach a, just a historic dead Jesus, but one who is risen from the dead, who is still alive right now. He's been seen by multiple eyewitnesses. He could tell the Athenians, go ask the eyewitnesses. We saw him rise from the dead. And listen, if he is risen and he is alive right now, then that means the risen Jesus Christ, you must respond to him. What you do with this risen living Christ determines your eternity. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, if you keep going, what is he preaching? What's the evangel? Now, we get a, we get a sermon snippet here uh, of what he said from verse 22 to verse 31, the passage we skipped a moment ago. Now, I say a snippet because in the middle of him preaching, he gets interrupted. He's interrupted. Some people are offended and, and begin to mock him and interrupt what he's saying. Well, we get, a, we get a sermon snippet here to give us an idea of what does this man preach? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, and I want you to look at verse 22 and we'll read all the way to verse 31. Imagine him there at the Areopagus. The door has been opened and he preaches. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he, gives, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man. Whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all. By raising him from the dead. Beautiful preaching to these Athenians. Now what we see in this passage. Is that famous gospel outline. I hope that will be, be helpful to you. That famous gospel outline of, of God. And sinful man. And Christ. And response. And that little outline that I, I love because it helps you remember this is, okay, these are the, the categories in which we can understand this is what the gospel is. And we see God, man, Christ's response as we walk through what he just preached, that little snippet of his sermon. Now, what does he say about God? He begins by saying, hey, I was seeing all your idols and I noticed this inscription to an unknown God. And that one that you don't know, I want to make God known to you. And He's going to make known to them a God that makes obsolete all their other false gods. I'm going to make God known to you. Now what does He say? What does He say about God? He speaks about God as Creator and Lord. We see it in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is your Creator. He created all things and He is Lord. Master, ruler, king of heaven and earth. This is who God is. And not only is He creating the Lord, but He preaches Him as the self-sufficient God. Look at verse 25. Nor is He worshipped or served by human hands as though He needed anything. Since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Did you hear it there? And He continues to even... Pull out more of the self-sufficiency of God as he speaks, as he, he even quotes their own poets on this. But here, here's the idea. He's not worshipped by men's hands. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need man. Man needs God. All this stuff you're doing to these idols, all this stuff you're doing to try to gain God's favor, it's worthless. 
It's not going to help you. you. Your whole life, you Athenians, your whole life, you have been trying to please the gods. And none of it means anything. He's not served by men's hands. We're all like an unclean thing. All our righteous deeds, all these sacrifices are like filthy garments. It won't work. God doesn't need us. We need God. Self-sufficient God. He's also, he's also presented by Paul, not just as creator and Lord or self-sufficient God. He's also presented as the judge. We see that in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day. There is a day fixed. Brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone else here. There is a day fixed, it says, on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's the righteous judge. And one day, every single soul, every single person will stand before the God and you will tremble before Him and give an account. And those who have Christ, it'll be a glorious time of entering into glory and joy unspeakable. And those without Christ will be separated from ever. Torment day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire according to Revelation 20.10. He's the judge. He's the judge. So he preaches about God. He also preaches about the sinfulness of man. The second part of that outline, the sinfulness of man. We see it in verse 29 and 30. Now, now think about how direct, he, how direct he is with their sin here. Look at how direct he is. Being then God's offspring. And think about who he's talking to. Full of idols. Think about who he's talking to. We ought not to think that the divine being... Is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now repent. He confronts their sin. He doesn't soft pedal it. He doesn't back off on it. He, he puts forward, this is your gift. I told you God is creator. I told you God is king and Lord. And listen, you have sinned against this God. You've broken His commands. And He confronts their sin. He also preaches Christ. God, man, Christ. We see, we really just kind of get a glimmer of this, right? Because He gets interrupted. But we see it in verse 31 where He says, He's going to judge the world by a man whom God has ordained. And He's given assurance or proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Christ Jesus is preached. And then, of course, we see him call them to respond. As he says, all men everywhere are commanded to repent. It's not just an invitation. It is a command from God, from Christ, that you repent and turn to him. It's not preaching the gospel. It's not just an information done. Just give them the information. But it's a call them into it. Call them to respond to come to Christ. God, man, Christ response. And I'll just... Finish that point by saying this, that every single person in this room has got to come to grips with that message. Listen, God is your creator and he's your judge. He has creator rights over you. He, he gets to tell you what to do and you have broken his command. Your life has been filled with idolatry. And every one of us has to come to grips with that. And our only hope is this, that Christ Jesus has come. Our only hope is that He has died for our sins. That He has risen from the dead. And we must respond with repentance and turn to Him. That we might be saved. Third heading there. The evangelistic outcomes. So we see the evangelizer. We see the evangel that he preached. Now let's see the outcomes. What were the outcomes here? And there were three kinds of responses. Three kinds of responses that he got in Athens. Let me show you those three kinds of responses. Look at verse 32. First response is this. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Mockers. They were mocking him. This is one of the responses you get. You see the same thing in verse 18? They said, what does this babbler want to say? Just mocking him. What does this babbler wish to tell us? So mocking is a response that you get. Now everywhere our countercultural gospel is preached, it is met by the world, the flesh, and the devil with mocking or worse. 
Everywhere this countercultural gospel was preached, it's met with mocking or worse. We see it everywhere, right? First missionary journey. What happens to Paul and, and, and Barnabas there? One time Paul is, is stoned nearly to death. He's run out of cities. What do we see in the second missionary journey? He goes to Philippi and he's beat to death and thrown in a prison cell. What are we seeing against the Thessalonica? He's run out of the city by persecution. Berea, run out of the city. And here he gets to Athens and he's mocked. Mocking and derision. It follows evangelism. It follows the preaching of the gospel. One, one writer called it the counter-cultural gospel. Which would be a reason that, that the, the, the sections of Christianity you see in our culture that seem to be obsessed with being culturally relevant, it's why you should feel warned about that. Could it be that they want to avoid mocking? Could it be that we want to avoid mocking? That's the first kind of response. Second kind of response he gets. Second kind of outcome. Look at the second half of that verse. Verse 32. But others said, we will hear you again about this. We will hear you again about this. I'm going to call this the open-minded intellectual. The open-minded intellectual. Now, again, if you if you back up to verse you know 18 to about 21, you see the same thing. They invite him in. They're open-minded intellectuals and philosophers, saying, "We want to hear you tell tell us more about this." Okay. Now, in a sense, this is a good thing. In a sense, it is a good thing, and that they want to hear more. They're not completely closed out. They're not obviously opposing it. They want to hear more. In, in a sense, it's a good thing. But what I want to do is I want to give a warning about this. I think, you, I think we should feel a warning about this kind of agnostic mindset. Agnostic means I don't know. I'm not atheistic, I'm not theistic. I just don't know. I'm agnostic. This kind of mindset of being in the middle. I, I think we have a tendency to legitimize that mindset. Well, we look, at least he's not opposed. At least he's open to it. But here's the warning. To, to be these people is to be in rebellion to Christ. Because what is the command? The command. God has commanded, verse 30, commanded all men everywhere to repent. And every moment you don't do that, you are in, you're in rebellion to God. And so listen, if you fit this this description this morning. If you're here and you fit the description of this open-minded intellectual, you know, I'm not out, but I'm not in. I'm just kind of an undecided thinker. Listen to me. God does not pat you on the back for that. He didn't say, look how open-minded you are. You might die in your rebellion and go to hell forever. Be warned about this. These people are not saved. They're not mocking, but they're not saved. Now there's a third outcome which is beautiful. It's salvation. Look at verse 33 and 34. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him in belief, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now this is beautiful. Try to imagine that. He's at the Areopagus and you got all these intellectuals and philosophers everywhere. They're all around. And people over there on the side and people are listening, are gathered up to hear what's going on. And he begins to preach. And people roll their eyes and people yawn at him. People mock him and sneer at what he's doing. Even in the midst of his preaching, it's obvious, that, it's obvious they're rejecting it. It's what he sees all around him. And here's what he doesn't know. That there's one that's even sitting on the council. And there he got one of, one of the council members of the Areopagus here. Here he is, Dionysius, and something's going on in the soul. The same gospel that's being seen as foolishness right there, right there in that man's heart, he begins to feel conviction of his sin. He begins to feel the weight that there is a judgment coming. I'm going to have to face this God. And I believe what that man is saying. I want to turn to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Or this lady, Damaris, maybe she heard Paul preaching in the marketplace and now she's just, now she's off to the south somewhere. And Paul sees mocking and sneering and people rejecting what he's doing. But something's going on in that lady's heart. The Holy Spirit is at work moving on that gospel preaching. It's a beautiful thing. As I read this, I felt like, um, I experienced, uh, at least saw something similar to that Thursday this week. That 
We're at the abortion place there and we're there to be evangelists, there to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you get there, it's, it's mocking and sneering. And, and probably that day I was maybe cussed out worse than I probably ever have been in my life that particular day on Thursday. Just mocking and sneering. And there's this lady there uh, named Miss Catherine, sweet, older lady, very reserved, very quiet. Hardly ever says anything loud enough unless you're right up close to her. And there she is at, the, at this abortion place. And this lady comes strolling up and she's going in for an abortion. And she's going in and we've said a few things to her about Christ. Invited her, asked if we could pray for her. Spoke to her about the love of Christ. We've done that as she's gone by. She gets right there to Miss Catherine. And Miss Catherine begins to talk to her. I can't hear what she's saying. Begins to talk to her. And this lady seems like she leans in. And she's listening to her. And then I, I noticed that that she begins to tell him, Miss Catherine begins to tell this lady, look, the, the Christian pregnancy center is right down the street. I'll walk there with you. I'll go there with you. So right in the midst of all this mocking and all this uh, all this sneering that's being poured out on Miss Catherine, just like it is everybody else that's there, not only from the people coming in, but from the guards there, the people that work there, all this mocking is going down. And here's this lady walks up and, and she begins to, to go that way with Miss Catherine. But then, but then the people that work there say something to her. Say, look, either get into your appointment or it's over. So she walks and she goes into the abortion place and we're obviously a little disappointed about that. I thought she was about to leave. And just a little bit later, I see her come out the back door and the security guard is escorting, escorting her out the back door. And I watch her. She walks out and she watches. And as soon as the security guard goes back in the building, she does a 180 and guess who she's coming to find? Miss Catherine. Miss Catherine catches eye contact with her, goes to her, and as soon as she puts her arm around this lady, this lady just loses it and begins to weep. And she walks with her to the Christian pregnancy center there. Now, I wish I could tell you I know more of what's going on, but listen, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Miss Catherine's there and in the midst of mocking and sneering and all this stuff. And look at God. Look at God at work. You don't always know, but look at Him at work in that lady's life. Beautiful thing. So what are the outcomes that we see? Mocking, the open-minded, intellectual, and then we see conversion, we see salvation. And everywhere evangelism is engaged in, these are the outcomes that we'll see. Every, every one of these outcomes. Now, here's what I want to do. I sincerely desire to encourage and build up each one of you, especially in this area of evangelism. Okay? Uh, again, Ephesians 4, 11, 12, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. I, I sincerely want to, I want to equip you. I want to help equip you for the work of specifically evangelism. To do that, I just want to give you four very quick evangelistic takeaways. Four quick takeaways. Number one, be jealous for God's glory. Get Get a holy jealousy for the glory of God. Now we see that in verse in verse 16, right? He has a holy zeal for God's glory. Got, he has a holy hatred for idolatry that moves him into the evangelistic mission. It says he's provoked in his spirit because the city was full of idols. Now I believe that many people believe... I, th I think many people think that the reason they're not evangelistic is because they don't know enough or they're not trained well enough. And listen, I understand the importance of you got to know some things and you, and you need to be trained. There's no doubt about that. But so many people think, look, man, I'm just not evangelistic. What do I need to do? I just need to know a few more things. Is that true? Or could it be that you lack this, this longing for God to be glorified, this hatred for idolatry? Could this be the place where you need to be moved? To get a holy jealousy for God's glory. Not just that you need to know a few more things. You need to long for Christ to be exalted and idols to be torn down. And let it drive you to a place of evangelism. I want to read this to you from John Stott. He speaks on that. And I thought he said it better than I could. So let me read this to you from John Stott. It's not only the comprehensiveness of Paul's message in Athens... Which is impressive. But also the depth and power of his motivation. So it's not just not just not beautiful, just the message, but but look at the motivation he had. Why is it, in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on? 
And that so many Christians are deaf and dumb. Deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this. I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. And this is because we do not see like Paul. When Paul walked around in Athens, he didn't just notice the idols. He looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires of holy indignation were kindled within him. For he saw men and women created by God in the image of God, giving to idols the homage which was due to God alone. We constantly pray. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name. But we do not seem to mean it or to care that his name is so widely profane. I think we should receive that as an encouragement and as a push about do we feel what Paul feels. Second takeaway, use the Bible. And your evangelism, brothers and sisters in Christ, use God's Word. Actually use the Bible. Now, when, when I've seen Christians grab hold of this and it's a game changer for them. Literally revolutionizes the way they look at the mission of God when they realize, okay, I shift the confidence away from myself onto God and His Word and actually use the Bible. We see it in Acts 17 too, right? He reasoned with them from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now I know there have been some silly little pastors that have said things like, well, when you get to these intellectual people, he doesn't share the Scriptures anymore. Listen to me. Just think about it for a minute. Scripture is literally pouring out of Paul's mouth at this moment. We're reading it. Use the Bible. Use the Scriptures. It's not my word like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, whether they believe it or not. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, whether they believe it or not. Use God's Word. Get set free from confidence in self and have confidence in the seed of God's Word that you plant into the hearts of men. Use God's Word. Third, takeaway. Do not wait idly for an open door. As I explained a moment ago, don't wait idly by... For an open door. God will open doors in evangelism as we are obedient in evangelism. Then He will open doors for us. He really will. Acts 17, 17, we see Him doing that, right? He's, go, he's being obedient. He's, he's not waiting around. He's going to the synagogues. He's going to the marketplaces daily, speaking to just whoever happens to be there. Now, I think many people think this. I think many people think, look, I'm not living an evangelistic life because there's no open door opportunities, right? Is that true? Do we not live evangelistic lives? Is it because we don't have any open door opportunities? Is that why? Or is it that we're not being obedient with what we do have? Don't wait around. Don't be idle in this. Be intentional. Where, where is your synagogue where, where uh, the, it's just kind of more natural? The Scriptures are already being opened. Where is that place? Do you go there with an evangelistic mindset? Maybe something like this. But lost people come into these meetings at times. The Bible's already open. It's a more natural place. Do you use it and think of it as an evangelistic opportunity? Or maybe in your job or maybe in certain Bible studies. What are your marketplaces? He went to the marketplace and spoke with whoever happened to be there. How are you being intentional with where you put yourself and putting yourself around lost people so that they can get the gospel? It's a very rare thing that you have. You have the greatest jewel on planet earth and in all the heavens. And you have it. What a jewel to get around some people that don't have it. So you can share it with them. And then last takeaway here. Trust God in the midst of rejection. Uh, as I said earlier, mocking and rejection will follow ev evangelistic efforts every time. Don't let rejection or past rejection or perceived future rejection or the, the pain of thinking about being mocked, don't let that stop you from being evangelistic. Don't let it stop you. Don't let it cause you to twist or change yourself in that glorious message. 
But trust God. Let Paul's example be a good example for us all. That here he is. He's mocked. He's, he's in other places thrown in prison. He's, he's made fun of. He's sneered at. All those things are there. And yet, look what God's doing in Dionysius. Damaris and the others that are there with him. Let that be an encouragement to trust God. He couldn't see it at first. And yet God was moving. The Holy Spirit was at work. So just trust Him. Just pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for this example for us. Thank You, Lord, for Your glorious Gospel that we have been so cold toward these things and disobedient in these things so many times, God. We have allowed fear to overtake us. We've allowed mocking and rejection to stop us, God. We've done those things and we know it, Lord. And God, I praise You for the glorious Gospel. That Lord Jesus, You died for our sins. You laid down Your life for our sins. But God, You also said that that those who are yours are full of your spirit. That you have caused you, that you, Holy Spirit, have come to indwell us, to empower us, to make you known, to empower us, to be your witnesses. God, I pray that you would exalt that truth in this church. Exalt that truth that your people are full of the Holy Spirit to make your truth known in all the world. God, help us with our fears. Help us with our with our lethargy, God, with our, with our complacency, God, please help us with these things. God, I pray that You would fill our hearts with a holy burden for the lost, a fiery zeal for Your glory, a deep hatred for idolatry. God, fill our hearts with it, Lord. Make us like this man that we read about, Lord. Make us like You, Lord Jesus. You said that if we followed You, You'd make us fishers of men. And Lord Jesus, You are a fisher of men. You are a friend of sinners. Make us like You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.